Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Hey, Data Stack Show listeners. We have another live recording coming up next Wednesday, September 21st at 1.30 Eastern, 10.30 Pacific. This time, we'll be talking about building modern data teams with a great lineup. Sri, the head of data infrastructure at Robinhood, Paige, a data analyst who was on the Netlify data team, and Sean, a cloud data engineer at REI, are all going to join us. They've all been on the show before. We can't wait to have them back to tackle this subject because they're going to bring a really diverse perspective here. They've all been on different teams in different roles, so they're really going to help us understand what works and how can we build high-performing teams in such a rapidly evolving space. So visit datastackshow.com slash live to register today for next Wednesday, September 21st at 1.30 Eastern, 10.30 Pacific. Costas, today we're going to talk with what I think is actually a really interesting company in terms of the context of both the problem they're solving and then how long they've been doing it. So we're going to talk with Ben Sansel from Mode, and they've been around for almost a decade doing data visualization and sort of analytics workflow stuff, which is super cool. Ben writes a very popular blog. Lots of people, including myself, love to read his thoughts on everything. And this isn't going to surprise you, but I want to know why he started Mode. There were some huge enterprise incumbents when he started Mode. It was just right at the genesis of the cloud data warehouse, which is a really interesting time. You actually have similar experience with this, starting a you know sort of data company right around the same time. And so I just want to hear about that. What was he thinking? What was he doing? And what led to him starting it? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a special episode, to be honest, because Ben is one like, of the first people that I've met in person while I was still like building Blendon. Really? Like on your first trip to San Francisco? Yeah. Yeah. No way. So he's a person that like, I mean, he's kind of special to me. And also he's a person that I really appreciate both his opinion and the way that he expresses his opinion, because that's also mm. important. So yeah, I'm really looking forward like to chat with him today and uh, talk about like all the things that have changed like these past uh, 10 years in the industry. And I'm pretty sure we're going to be surprised by uh, his thoughts and opinions. I agree. Let's dive in. Ben, welcome to the Data Stack Show. Super excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Okay, let's start where we always do. Give us your background and kind of what led you to what you're doing today at, at Mode. So I am one of the founders of Mode. It's a basically a BI product built for analysts. You can get into more specifically what it is in the conversation. Mode's been around for a little while. So we started Mode in 2013 or so. So it was one of the kind of early cloud data tools or modern data tools that we're now have plenty of. Prior to that and kind of where it originally came from, I worked on a data team at a company called Yammer. Along with a number of other folks, three of us left to, to go start mode. 
So basically got a lot of like exposure to how people were thinking about data. That company saw some of the things that, that we thought might make an interesting product, an interesting business. Started mode. And then it, since being at mode, it's kind of bounced around from a number of different things. Most of my time has been spent in either thinking about our own internal analytics and, and kind of data infrastructure and spending time on, on kind of the landscape and, and thinking a lot about like what's going on in the data world, the data community, what people talking about, what kinds of things are, are kind of the trends that are, you know, mode and everybody else is kind of writing what might be popular, what won't stick, that kind of stuff. And then, and you know, in addition to that, as, as you kind of tend to do at startups, bounced around for another jobs of like being involved in marketing or customer success or solutions or products or, you know, running the exact team, whatever kind of stint you have in kind of your various rotational programs over the course of, of eight or nine years at a startup. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a long tenure for a startup. So congratulations. I'd love to actually dig into what you saw as the problems you wanted to solve, right? I mean, even back, you know, in 2013, you know, like the cloud data warehouse is still like fairly new, you know, kind of emerging, but there were still like massive incumbents in the analytics space, right? So you had, you know, whatever Tableau and like visualization had sort of some major incumbents at like the enterprise level. So what did you see that made you say like, okay, I want to go build something new because there's some sort of need or like something that's not, you know, some itch that's not being scratched in the market? Yeah. So the basic answer to that is the problem that we had at, at Yammer. So we were a data team at, at the time Yammer was, so Yammer got acquired by Microsoft in 2012. We were, we were, the company was about 400 people or so when it got acquired. We had a data team of... 20 roughly, including data engineering. And we, we represented this kind of like new version of what data teams were becoming in Silicon Valley, where our job was to work with other people around the business to help them make decisions. We were not a BI and reporting team. Like we weren't there to just build dashboards and sort of mm. binders that execs are supposed to look through for their, their weekly meetings. But we also weren't a, a team full of statisticians who were trying to work in, in sort of capital D data science type of, type of places. And so what we're trying to do is like sit next to businesses, like people in the business and say, which marketing campaign should we run? Which product should we build? How do these A-B tests perform? That kind of stuff. Yep. The way that we needed to do it was we wanted tools for ourselves who were relatively technical data analysts. So technical in the sense that we could write SQL, R, a little bit, a little bit of Python kind of stuff. Yep. But we also knew we to share that stuff with other people. Like our job was very much business oriented. We weren't, we weren't deploying code to production or anything like that. Yep. And so the, the tooling to us was either the traditional BI tooling that you're talking about. So Tableau was kind of the cutting edge of that, but also all of the, you know, the micro strategies and business objects and, and those yep. types of things. Or it was stuff that tilted very technical. So the basically statistical tools, data and, and SAS and those kinds of things. Or, you know, our studio, Jupyter Notebooks were around that point. It was like Python, I think, at that point. Yeah, like visualization or like really gutsy, like heavy duty stuff. Yeah. And and while we were like desktop SQL editors, you know, like like data grip and, and you yep. know, that sort of stuff, SQL workbench. Those tools would have worked for us, the more technical ones, because that kind of fit what we were trying to do. 
but we couldn't actually share any of that stuff with anybody else. Like it, it didn't work for the rest of the business because we can't send to the CEO here is an iPython notebook. Like, you know, here's the instructions for how to send it up and run it. We couldn't send them a SQL query and have them run it. We couldn't send them like we weren't going to pay for SAS because we were a startup. So all those things didn't really work for us. And the BI tools were very aimed at like these non-technical folks which was like, our job is to build dashboards that you put up on a TV screen. I'm like, that's not the job we want to do either. So we basically like, we need to do this ourselves. We need to, we ended up, the, the team at Yammer built an internal tool that, that looked what it is essentially like a very stripped down version of mode that was basically a SQL editor and a browser with charts on top. And so what we would do is we like do analysis and SQL, write queries, save those like charts, send them to people and be like, you know, here is why campaign A did better than campaign B, or here's some analysis that tells their story. And so what we ended up seeing kind of was, was two kind of big trends that were emerging around this time. This is more or less why we, why we left to go start mode. One was cloud data warehouses. So at, at Yammer, we were spending a whole bunch of money on data infrastructure. Like we had a Vertica cluster. We were probably spending half a million to a million bucks a year on it. Like that was kind of par for the course. If you're using Vertica, Oracle, Teradata, whatever. The other thing is we, we had this kind of team that we thought was specialized. It was like, this is not many companies have teams like this. Both of those things changed where cloud data warehouses made the cost of the infrastructure way cheaper. So you could run Redshift for a few thousand bucks a month. And then the, the team that we represented this kind of like analytics team that thinks about data, not as a reporting function or not as like an actuarial function, became much more of the way that a lot of companies thought about data, that, that people started pulling off what was the Facebook model, the Airbnb model, that kind of stuff and saying, our data teams are not IT teams. They are not also a bunch of statisticians in the basement. They are like people to help the business, to kind of deploy around the business and, and to be, you know, data experts to help people make decisions. And those were really the two trends that, that we were right. Yeah, super interesting. Okay, question for you. So like the term data engineering is actually like relatively young. How did you refer to the team back then? Because that was sort of, you know, maybe say like before data engineering became as formal a term as it is now in terms of like, you have a data engineering team, right? Or mm -hmm. like a head of data engineering role or whatever. I'm just interested to know, like, I mean, so that's like a decade ago, right? How did you refer to it? Because it also sounds, what's interesting is like, it also sounds that at Yammer, the data team was operating in a very forward-thinking way. You know, it's like, we've heard it called like structured embedding or something, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have like someone from a data team, like sitting with a someone, you know, in a business function and like working on that stuff. So and just interested to know like the ways that you thought about it and maybe even the terminology you used like a decade ago. So actually the terminology was easier then than it is now. We... The Yammer was a, Yammer was like a relatively forward thinking company. I, I will give it credit for that. And in, in a couple of particular ways, the two kind of, these are the ways that we are writing are sort of like the, the data moving to the cloud and like the rise of these sort of new data teams thinking in new ways. A couple of things that, that Yammer was writing was what, what was referred to then as the consumerization of IT. So basically like business <laughs> products are getting built like consumer products where instead of it being a thing that you build and you go sell IT and like nobody likes, but IT does because it checks various boxes, you should go build something that the end users themselves will like and then pressure IT to get. The other thing that, that Yammer did sort of was pioneering kind of was a little bit of the wrong word, but was one of the early companies in was thinking about data 
for a business the way the consumer companies did too, where we ran a lot of A-B tests. We did a lot of this stuff that was meant to say, how do we build a better product, a stickier product, a more viral product in the yes. same way that really like gaming companies had actually pioneered. You know, the like Zingas in the world were a lot of the people who really thought about this stuff in, in sort of very robust ways. Yep. And we were basically picking off some of the easy stuff from what they had done. What, one quick question there. Mm-hmm. Do you think that what Yammer, and actually maybe uh, this sounds funny because like I remember Yammer, I remember using Yammer, but do you mind just giving like a quick explanation of what Yammer is for our listeners who might not know or what it was who might not know, especially like as it existed pre-Microsoft? Yammer, yeah. So Yammer was Facebook for work before Facebook for work existed. It was like quite literally, it was, it was intended to be something that felt exactly like Facebook, where you have a feed, you've got groups, you've got like the, the experience was meant to say, Hey, Facebook works really well for getting like a bunch of viral adoption around your friends. What if we do the same thing for, for work? In effect, no, it's, I think it's interesting. The, the product actually worked really, really well if you used it right, because I mean, right. If you used it, like it basically went all in on it. Because yep. it was, I am, I am a, personally, I hate Slack. I think Slack is a disaster for society. <laughs> it was, but it, but it does some things well, which is like unsilos communication or whatever. It gets everybody in one place. It has some nice stuff, like, you know, even a bunch of email threads are bad about, but it does it in a way that is just this like 40 fire hoses that are constantly hitting you in the face to the point where you should mute everything and like pray. Yammer actually worked a little bit like how Facebook actually works, where you can check Facebook and if you log, like, or at least how Facebook used to 10 years ago, if you log into Facebook and like kind of read it 20 minutes a day, you'll end up picking up pretty well on like what people are doing. You suddenly have yep. this ambient awareness of what's going on with yep. all of your friends. Sure. Because you don't see everything they say, but you'll see this, you'll see this picture, whatever. And that was basically what Yammer was trying to capture was create the same kind of feed that you're not supposed to read everything. But if you check it periodically, you'll see a bunch of conversations from other people around the business. It's like, oh, I yep. see this thing about marketing. If it looks interesting to me, I would kind of read the thread. Yep. So it's actually like a kind of digestible thing, similar to like reading the news. But it was very much like the product itself was very much like Facebook's work. Like it was just yep. a, a feed threaded messages out. Yeah, it's just super interesting because it's, when you think about that happening a decade ago, it's a really interesting context of having a B2B like SaaS product in terms of like the way it's going to market but like delivering the product is very much a beat, like a, a consumer experience, right? It just happens to be like inside of a business. Do you think that that dynamic sort of helped catalyze some of the ways that you were approaching, like working with data where like it was a B2B company, but you had like a very consumer mindset? I think it did. I think it, yes. And Yes, I certainly did. Like that, that was certainly, you know, the, me and the other two folks who started Mode as well, some of the early employees who, who came from Yammer all had the mindset that we were kind of instilled with from Yammer, which was around this idea of build a consumerized product, think about marketing in a more consumer way, think about growth in a more consumer way. I think that served us well in some respects and, and badly in others, to be entirely honest. And I think like interesting that still applies to data companies today. And I think we've moved a little bit past this idea of like, you know, growth hack your way into success, which is yeah. sort of where that, that was, that was like at the height of this sort of growth hacking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that. 
That, would you say that's like what the negative part was? Like it served you well in some ways, but like not in others. What were the not in others? I think it, so I think it serves you well. And like, you think about the end user, you think about building a product that people like, like the, the product is the focus. The downside I think is businesses buy things differently. And like there, you, you develop kind of a disdain for traditional marketing and hmm. like the value of the pay to have a coffee with a CIO and talk to that person. And, you know, like, like there is just some, like write the white papers, do the stuff that people have done in sort of B2B marketing forever, talk to analysts, do all of that kind of legwork that you're sort of like, we don't need that. If we have a good enough product, it will sell itself. Right. Or better than that. Exactly. I mean, yeah. And, and like, there are every once in a while companies that seem to do this, that you're like, oh, of course we can do that. Like Slack to some extent did this, but it's hard because these products, like there's sort of a natural limitation to how viral they could be. Businesses are still like, the purchasers are still often IT. There are a lot of concerns with the businesses that are not, especially mm. the data where like security and privacy and all those sorts of things matter, where, where you're not selling a consumer product. Like you could kind of think of it that way, but you're not. And so I think, I think that, that there are some places where like early we had this idea, like, yeah, we'll build a viral thing. We'll focus on all that. And I think there is, there is some legwork to be done on building an actual like enterprise grade products that you have to start yeah. on pretty early to do it. And, and thinking about like sort of growth hacking or whatever you want to call it as yeah. the actual path of success, I think, I think is a little bit of a distraction. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. Costas, I got to, I'm, I'm going to hand the mic over to you because I'm having too much fun. Please, please jump in. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can join the conversation whenever you want, but yeah, it was very interesting, like to listen to both of you. And uh, like, I have a question based like on the stuff that you were discussing towards the end. So you've talked about like B2C, B2B, like growth hacking, like viral growth and like all these things. And what like comes to my mind is like, as a question, like how things are different about like the stuff that we talk and care about in the Valley, in the Silicon Valley and outside Silicon Valley, because, okay, we build, let's say products in a kind of like bubble, right? Like it doesn't mean that the rest of the world out there like operates or work like in exactly the same way. And I think this is like even more evident when we are talking about B2B because, okay, B2C is like a different kind of beast and how like you can, let's say, approach like people and do marketing and selling all that stuff. But with B2B, like things are different in terms of like how fast things can change and behaviors can change, right? Like Ben, you said some things about like the CIO, drinking coffee with them, like talking to analysts, like all these things are still there, right? And even like with the success of Snowflake, it's not like Snowflake didn't do that stuff anyway, even if like they had a more product-led, let's say, growth strategy or whatever. Uh, so based on your experience, like how different are things inside and outside Silicon Valley when it comes like to building technology and selling technology? I mean, I, I, I'm in Silicon Valley, so I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like my, my general take on that is there's there are like a couple ways which it's very different and a couple ways it's actually not like I, I think there there is there is this sort of impression and that you see if you read like political journalism there's a lot of political journalism about like the dc elite going out to the diner in kansas and talking about this is what real people think and like they mostly think the same things that people in dc think they don't pay as much attention 
but they're not like sitting around, you know, the only thing I care about is like gas prices and that's it. Like they are entertained by sort of the political theater, the same as everybody else's. I think the same is sort of true for, for tech where they don't spend as much time thinking about this stuff. They don't have podcasts about data infrastructure tools. Most of these people are not like driven that much in their jobs by like, I care about the, the craftsmanship of the technology that I am using. But I think a lot of ways their problems aren't that different. Like these businesses are trying to solve the same sorts of things. They see the stuff that people in Silicon Valley have done just as like startups look at Airbnb and, and want to emulate some of the stuff that they did their success or Facebook or Uber, you know, so does such and such company in Dallas that is trying to build a similar business. They care about what Facebook is doing. And when they talk to the Gartner analysts, the Gartner analysts are looking at what Facebook is doing. So I don't think it's that. Those things aren't that different. Like, you know, they want products that work. They want products they enjoy using. They want products that make them not miserable when they, when they have to use it. But I think they should spend less, a lot less time talking about it. And to me, the, the biggest place where that like actually manifests itself is there are certain things that, that we probably, like in Silicon Valley, my contention is we overvalue certain things mm-hmm. because we ourselves value them. And like craftsmanship and software is part of that where it's, or, or sort of philosophical stances about software. And one of the ones that I, I like more recently have been thinking about is like modularity in the data stack. This has become a thing that is like a little bit of a, a best practice about building data tools is you want stuff that's modular. You want things where you can like plug and play and you can have kind of a Mr. Potato Head type of deal where you choose the mouth and the ears and all fits together really great. And like philosophically great. I think that makes sense. I think everybody wants that. But if you don't care that much about it, you actually, there's a thing that's even more valuable, which is you could buy all the pieces and Mr. Potato had one package. And like, I don't have to go to 10 stores to buy a, a leg and an arm. It's like, ah, I do want the nice leg and I do want the nice arm, but it also saves me a lot of time to just buy them in one place. And if like this place has like the discounted leg, but it works, I'll take it. And so I think there's stuff like that. that's more around how people buy software, the things they value that is different. But I don't think it's like some crazy different world where they're, you know, eh, we're aliens and they're not or whatever. Like it's, yeah, yeah. everybody's still trying to kind of solve the same problems and fundamentally driven by like the same principles. Yeah, no, makes total sense. So, okay, you mentioned like the modularity and of like the modern data stack or whatever we want to call it. Do you think that the reason that we ended up like with so many different, let's say, tools that you have to use in order to build like, let's say this stack is mainly like what you mentioned about like this kind of like software engineering kind of mentality in Silicon Valley, or there are also like other reasons that contributed to this unbundling of the data stack or whatever, like it's called. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think we have all of these tools because it was easy to raise VC money. Like, I I mean, I I think it's, I think it was basically that, that Silicon Valley poured a whole bunch of money into the space. You could start a company and raise 20 million bucks with a pitch deck. And especially if you were someone who came from a reputable like data team in Silicon Valley, if you were, you know, head of data infrastructure at X notable startup, VCs would throw money at. And there's this kind of interesting dynamic too, where if you are, say you are a, a data person. Your career is sort of capped. Like it's hard to know where to go. It's hard to know where senior director of data infrastructure at, you know, what's that kind of, I'm like, blank on the comedy. 
who cares? Some, some $10 billion startup goes, you know, say you work at Coinbase, the senior director of data infrastructure at Coinbase. Where do you go next? Like, what's your next step? I don't know, actually. Like, you move into just sort of like general business leadership, maybe, but like as a data person, the career path is sort of like not there yet. Like, I think it will be. And I think these folks can become just general like leaders of business or whatever. But if you're an engineer, like you can move up to being, you know, VPs and CTOs and things like that. If you're in sales, you can move all the way up to the top or you can just make a whole bunch of money as like an IC sales rep. As, as an analyst or a data engineer, it's like, ah, you can kind of hit the ceiling and then your boss is now a CTO or your boss is the VP of finance. And like the data engineer does not get promoted to being a VP of finance. And so I think the combination of that sense, plus the fact that there's a whole bunch of money out there and it's clearly like the market was basically willing to accept anything. Drew a lot of people, and it doesn't take that much to really saturate the market with tools, but drew a lot of people who were at that point in their careers to be like, yeah, I'll start a company. Why not? Like these things seem like they basically hit the ground as successes. It gives me a chance to do a thing I've never done before. That was part of the motivation behind why I did it was mm -hmm. like, I'm a data person, but I'm ever going to be on, you know, the ground floor of a startup. Like you don't hire data people until like employee 50. And so I think it was kind of a why not. And so as a result of that, we got a lot of people who were looking for small problems to solve or trying to solve like the small wedge of an issue that they solved within their other companies, which is I'm not sort of putting any moral judgment on that. Like that's fine. Yeah, that's what exactly what I did. But when you do that a thousand times over, you end up with a whole lot of tiny wedges that can't be viable businesses unless they grow into big wedges. And then you have yourself a problem because all of them are going to be that. Mm -hmm. Okay. These are like some excellent points. So, okay. The career path is not there yet. So people in data there, I mean, they will be like, let's say stuck in this ladder for, for, for a while more, but at the same time, I mean, it seems at least that like, there's not that much money anymore out there, right? Like, so what do you think that it's going to happen next? I mean, there's like already quite a few companies out there, like pretty much every, every category has a number of vendors already. And what's next? Like, okay, for the VCs, I mean, okay, they have their portfolio anyway. Like, I, I, I'm not that much worried about them and their returns. Like, uh, they will figure it out. But like for the founders who have started like a data company out there, like, mm -hmm. and especially first-time founders, what your intuition says that it's going to follow? Like, are we going to have like merges? Are we going to see like companies shutting down? Like, what do you think? I mean, inevitably to some extent, yeah. Like, and, and I don't know how bad that'll get. Like, I, if I knew that, I would have a different job and be making a lot of money doing that. Um, <laughs> the, it's, it's interesting because, so if you go back to like the prior tech bubbles and things like that, obviously there was a lot of pressure on startups then and a lot of them shut down. The two things now that feel very different about it is, especially in, in the data world, is a lot of these companies have a lot of money. Like they went out and raised a whole bunch of money and probably haven't spent that much of it. Now there are some that probably raised money a year ago that like ramped everything like crazy. And those are the ones that are going to be in a little bit of trouble where like, oh my God, I thought I was a company that had a hundred million dollars in the bank and was worth a billion dollars with 5 million bucks in revenue. And now I have a 200 person team supporting that. And like, that's way too big. And the market actually today would value me a hundred million dollars. And like, what do I do? Okay. That's, that's like getting out pretty far, like in, in dangerous territory. Mm -hmm. But if you raised money six months ago, say you raised ten, hundred million dollars, and you know you're now worth a billion dollars. Company's not worth a billion dollars anymore. If you're going to raise today, it'd still be worth ten, hundred million, two hundred million, whatever. But 
you have a whole bunch of that money in the bank and you probably have to really change your business that much. And so really what you're doing is like, well, now let's just make our runway six years. And you could do that. And so I think like that's a very different world where a bunch of companies have runway for six years to be able to get through something like this in a case where like you have runway for two and you're desperately trying to figure out how to like basically catch up to your to your valuation so that you're not completely underwater. So that's one dynamic. The other dynamic is I think the data industry is still really big. Like regardless of what happens with these, you know, sort of a, a recession slash correction slash whatever you call it, these companies are still selling to something that's really big. I don't think it's big enough to support all of them, certainly not to support them at the valuations that they had six months ago. Certainly not like all of these companies that had their wedge was, you know, this is a company that's worth a billion dollars because that's a wedge that we think can turn into something that generates a hundred million dollars in revenue. There's a whole lot of wedges that are going to overlap with each other. But the industry, I think, is big enough to support a lot of this. And so my guess is the ones that that are in relatively good financial footing will figure out ways to come out of it. They won't all necessarily be like $10 billion companies or anything like that. Like, you know, being a billion dollar company is actually very hard, despite the last couple of years making it seem quite easy. So I think it'll basically just be like, that stuff is hard again. Uh, mm-hmm. but I don't think these companies are going to necessarily die. There's just going to be a lot of, a lot of VCs that make like pretty middling returns on some aggressive investments, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. So, okay. You've been, I mean, mode started like in 2013, like today's like we're in the 2022, many things have changed and so you have also gone through like. As, I mean, back then, like we were talking about like the BI market, there was a lot of competition there. We had like Looker, we had Periscope data, we had like a whole group of like companies that they ended up either like getting acquired. Many things happened in this market, right? Like it's, it, it was like very interesting for me to observe as an outsider, to be honest, because I wasn't working like in a BI too. But Moodle is still there and obviously like has done, like has evolved, right? So can you share like a little bit with us, like this evolution and like also like the journey through this evolution together with like how this is affected by the market out there, right? Like, because you don't build a company in the product, like in a vacuum. That's why I did also like all this introduction about how the market has changed. So yeah, I'd love to hear from that because like, it's, that's like a pretty unique experience that you have. And I think it would be awesome like to, to hear from you, like how you experience this. Yeah. I mean, so I think mode has been the, the, there's a question of how these have changed. The question of sort of like, why is mode still standing? Why, why are some of these other companies not around or been acquired? And why is mode, mode still standing in that regard? I, you know, I think a lot of that is, is luck. Like, uh, to be honest, I think that, that we. We had a, the initial thought for what mode was, was something that was born out of our own experience. And I think that saved us a lot where in, in these sort of like frothy versions of the market, you hear a lot of different things from customers and everything is moving really quickly. And I think we always had like some grounding of the product that we wanted to use. And I think that, that, that those guesses that we made about what makes that product important, about what it is that like analysts will actually want to use. What is it they won't want to use? What are the things they value versus the things they don't value? We got lucky in that I think they were mostly right. That doesn't mean we like did everything perfect by any means. There are plenty of places where like, you know, we didn't execute on things we should have executed on or made bad decisions or built the wrong thing or whatever. But generally, I think like in broad strokes, 
if, if we obviously didn't know exactly where the world was headed, but if you, we had looked at the world in 10 years ago and said, this is what it looked like in 2022, we would have been like, that's not a bad one for us. Obviously, if we'd known that, we would have done some things differently, but it's, it's a world that generally fit the direction that we were kind of, I don't want to even say betting, like we weren't, that, that would give us more sort of like agency in this that I think was really true. Like it was a world that we were intentionally or not building towards. And so I think we got, we got lucky in that where things like SQL stayed popular. One of our big bets was like, yeah, SQL based, be item basically, sure, yeah. lean on SQL. That could have not happened. And at the time, that was a little bit un unconventional. At the time, it was like, no, look, ML is the right way to do stuff. No, people are all going to move to like Hadoop-based stuff. And we were like, no, we're pretty sure SQL will be good. And that was one where, where we did actually try to make a bet and it landed pretty well. Um, but things like, like Node is a BI tool without much of a governance layer. Like we didn't focus a lot on semantic modeling and things like that. We focused on like rapid iterative analysis. Things like DBT introduced a semantic layer that we could use. And so that made it such that the version of BI that we had built, which didn't depend as heavily on this in, like, sort of built-in semantic layer, actually kind of fit. Had that not happened, had there been nothing like that in the market, had there been just like, oh, actually the way to do this is you build stuff like LookML or you build really deep versions of that. Like, yeah, mode would not have, have not have fared well in that world. No, again, the, one of the reasons we didn't do that is because within, within Yammer, where we built these tools, we'd actually built an internal thing that sort of looked like DBT. And so we were building kind of to the world that we created. We got lucky in the sense that that bet partly like, you know, we built a thing that, that just had some, some, it, it works, but we got lucky in that bet that that was actually the direction that things panned out. So I think that like part of it was, you know, that's the big reason to me why mode is, has been around is like, in a macro sense, a lot of these trends were things that played out. Now, you know, I, like, mm -hmm. I, I would also be remiss to not say another big reason why it's panned out, obviously, is because there's been a ton of hard work by a lot of people. There were a lot of very smart people on the mode team that, that made good decisions that just put in the hours to make it work. You know, startups are both a combination of luck and, and sort of the grind. And, and I am very fortunate that, that to have been part of a team that was, that was able and willing to put in that grind. So mm -hmm. uh, I'd be sort of remiss not to mention that, but you know, I think in terms of how it's changed, like mode is actually kind of interesting and it has never been through a pivot. Like a lot of data companies go through sort of pivots in their, in their life. Like mode is never really pivot. There's, it's sort of like winded a little bit. There have been some, some big swinging turns in some ways where it's like, oh, let's focus a little bit more on this or focus a little bit more on this. But if, if you just showed me again, mode, the moment we founded it compared to like, if, if the day of founding me had seen mode as it exists today, I would be like, okay, yeah, fits. Like it, it would have still fit the general direction. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, for us, like not that different, I guess, but, but again, a lot of that was just sort of like lucky macro guesses largely in the direction of the market was going to go. Yeah. You actually like pretty much also answered like the next question that I had, which is like, based on your experience, like, do you think that there was, let's say more change that was required for the product or for the business of mold because of the changes out there, like what, where was like more pressure and from what I understand, like, yeah, okay. Like market changes, maybe we have also like to adapt on how we do business and how we go to markets, but you didn't have like really to go through like some kind of big change on like what the product is, right? Like. No, we haven't gone through that. And I, and I think that there, there have been changes on the market and it's more of like market position. It's mm -hmm. more of like. 
if you just like were to map out the landscape, mode as a product is still similar to what it would have been, you know, day one, really. Like, again, obviously it has a lot more capabilities and things like that, but like, it's, it's not, if you squint enough, it looks the same. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that the particular place that it fits has become very different. So 2013 was a time when people were skeptical of data in the cloud. There was no sort of like, like ELT was barely a thing. Most people did not have cloud data warehouses that they were starting to. There was nothing like DVT or transformation. There was certainly nothing like orchestration, certainly nothing like data catalogs and, and observability and all those other things. There was no real concept of, of, there was like a very strong concept of exactly what BI was. There was no real concept yet of like analytics teams and what they were supposed to do. Like our first customers were data science teams. Like what are they trying to do? It's a little bit different. We had to explain to a lot of people that there's this thing, like I remember the very first pitches we ever gave, it was like, oh, there's this thing that's outside of a BI team that are the people like writing SQL queries, answering questions. And like one of the things that we got a lot of questions from the early pitches was how many people write SQL really? Like does SQL really matter? And so that obviously like that positioning has changed. There's this like data teams, analytics teams, what analytics engineering represents was not a thing at all. So like all of those worlds have changed in a way that, that again, actually grows around us in a decent way. We've gotten sort of lucky in that, but, but I think that's, that's largely the thing that's changed. It's like, how do, how do we position exactly what mode is in the market? Positioning is both about what we have and what the market it has in itself. And so I think like that has certainly changed, but again, the, the specific of what it is, is it, is an extra Mm-hmm. Okay. And how much does the market change like since 2013 like compared to I've been kind of interested in your your view on that too as someone who was who was in it then as well mm-hmm. um my view is a ton I mean I think that, that there's a handful of things I think they're very different one is the cloud like probably the biggest one is just like that has become much more ubiquitous much more widely accepted certainly there are some companies that are still hesitant about it you know you can't sell AWS to Walmart type of stuff is still there but, but like, hey, we have a cloud tool used to be like a deal breaker for a lot of people. Now it's kind of expected. And I think, you know, that up and down the stack. The other, I think, really big change is, is broadly speaking, the idea of analytics engineering. That's a little bit of a nebulous term. I don't quite mean it like exactly as the people who do what you would find on like DBT's blog is what analytics engineering is. To me, analytics engineering is more representative of like the new structure of what data teams look like. And this gets to, to Eric, your earlier question about like data teams and how they're different. When, when I was a Yammer, we had data engineers, which were just responsible for like building everything, building ETLs, keeping up a warehouse, basically being DBAs, all that sort of stuff. And then analysts were just strictly writing queries on top of it and built nothing. Yeah. It was an easy split because they were like the builders and the analysts and that is very clean. In this world, it's like a lot fuzzier, but as yeah. a result of that, you get a lot more of like people creating stuff with fast tools and, and this broader acceptance that a data team isn't just a bunch of like business analysts. It's this broader team that's trying to like solve big hard yeah. problems, changes a lot of the landscape in, in terms of how people like build tools, what they're trying to solve with them. So Mode, which is a tool that sort of fits those, those types of people. 
fits a little better in that landscape than one where it's like, well, we have data engineers and we have a bunch of BI analysts. One question for you on that, actually, did you, so when you had the builders and the analysts, like, and you had sort of a, you know, a really clear delineation there of jurisdiction, say, Mm -hmm. were there context problems, right? Because the people building, you know, are like building to spec, right? Say like, okay, we need to get data from here over to here. Uh, But the analysts like have a lot of context from the business users. And I agree that today, like, I think there's a really healthy crossover between like the building and the analysis. And like a lot of the tooling allows you to like almost combine like the context from the data to like the business problem. I mean, mode's a great example of that. But like back then, do you feel like there was a, a challenge with the builder getting enough context to like create sort of a, a data set that like serves the analyst needs and then ultimately the business users needs or the consumer. So I'm sure that like we, we didn't have that much problem with that at Yammer because of the way the team was structured and because of the tooling that we had. So the way our team was structured was data engineering and the analytics team all reported up to the same person. Like it was all part of one, one org. And so we were, they were, we were their customer. They were our, we were their customers. I don't know, whichever one we, we were sort of like the people they sat next to and, and the data engineers were basically building to serve us as, as analysts. And so it was like a pretty tight relationship there. The other thing is in, in like the analytics engineering world. We had built a tool that was a SQL-based transformation tool. We had built a tool that, again, like looked similar to what DBT does today. So that the pipelines were like the, just the data transformation the pipelines were built by analysts. Like we ourselves were building that. And I think that solved a lot of that problem where the data engineering folks were much more focused on how do we give you the tools to do that? How do we give you query tools, dashboarding tools, and those kind of things? Whereas whatever went in those things were, were our responsibility. But I mean, yeah, this, this was a problem back then. There was a, there's a, I don't know when this blog post is from, I think it's like 2015 or 2016, a blog post on, on Stitch Fix's blog, which I think is kind of one of the, the big trajectory changing things that has happened over the last decade or so. There was, I think the title of it, something like analysts shouldn't or data science or no, data engineers should not write ETL, where it was essentially arguing for data engineers being out of the building pipelines and transformations because to exactly what you're saying, like you can't, it's a hard thing to spec out. And it's this very bad back and forth of a, a very capable data engineer writing a bunch of like SQL to transform data in ways they don't really understand. And the analyst like writing the spec, it just doesn't make sense. And so I, that the reason that blog post probably had to get written was because that was exa- the problem you were describing was exactly what, what was happening. We were a little bit ahead of that at Yammer and that, you know, the, the folks who came before me, who built all this stuff anticipated that and built some solutions for it, but I'm sure industry-wide that was, that was not the case. Yeah, hundred percent. That's also like my experience, like by starting like a company back then. And uh, I mean, I also had, let's say the, the luxury, let's say of the experience of being one of, let's say the first categories of this unbundling. Right. Because, okay, it's one thing like to uh, go out there and be like, I'm building a BI solution. Okay. It's going to be like a very different way of doing BI, but it's a BI solution. And it's another thing like to do what like companies like Fivetran were doing back then or like Stitch Data and including like Blendo, where we were going out there and we're saying, well, you know, like 
you can move your data around by just clicking like a few buttons and you can do it on the cloud and you don't really have like to write your own transformations, like to move the data there and like all these things. And like one of like the biggest like changes that I have seen is like in the behavior of like the markets towards this kind of tool. Like if like if you know like when like we started the conversation, we were talking about like how many different tools we have today, right? Like back then you were saying that outside of like BI and the warehouse, I'm also giving you like a platform that's going to do like this one single thing, which is like moving the data and like doing the extraction and the loading of the data. And even that was like, why do I need that? Why like Looker is not going to build that? Why is not the AWS with Redshift is not going to build that? Or why I'm not going to just ask my data engineer to go and maintain and build like the Python script like to do that, right? Today, we don't talk that much about that. Like it's pretty much like a non-existent conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a big change that has happened, like definitely in terms of like the perception that people have on like how like this infrastructure should be built and maintained. And I think it has a lot to do with like the empowerment and like the different, let's say, position that like data teams have in the companies right now, right? Like it's not like an IT function. It's like something else. And that I think like has made like a huge difference, both like from the user perspective, because of like all the different tools that they are like available out there to use, but also like from being someone who wants to build it, right? Like it's a completely different experience to go to market right now. And I would say that for me, it's probably like a little bit of more of a technical like catalyst that I think that has happened is the cloud warehouse changed things a lot. And it's not that much because people moved into the cloud, it's because of like the elasticity that it provided for computing that made the ELT like reality because it's a completely different game to chat about, to discuss about data infrastructure like 20 years ago when you needed appliances. You needed, let's say, Writing ETL meant that any logic is part of the pipeline and like, do we want like to remodel the table? Like, yeah, we have like to go through like huge deployments to do that, right? None of that stuff would have happened if we didn't have, let's say, a way for people to be free from like how many resources they are going to need and like budget, like the computation and like the infrastructure upfront. So these are like the things that I have seen like change the lot and like really like acted like as catalysts to get today to where we are and together with the money from the VCs, like we have ended up like having all these like wealth of innovation happening. So that's how I see it. So Mm -hmm. go ahead. The one thing, the one thing I would add is, is it also, it compounds in, in ways that I think are, are hard to anticipate, you know, that there's like the, when Uber was early, there was a lot of stuff of like, oh, well, it's obviously the cap of its taxi industry, right? Like we will use Uber for, it's the Uber and taxi industry that are zero something. And basically what Uber was like, I guess, proved to some extent was if you make this easy enough, people will do a lot of things they wouldn't typically do with taxis with Uber, yep. where they'll commute to work with Uber because it's just straightforward. You can schedule it now or whatever. I'm like, I would never do that in a taxi, but with Uber, why not? And so. I think that we're like, you know, if I live in a neighborhood that doesn't always have taxis, I maybe I'll take it to the grocery store. I think a lot of stuff happens around like data infrastructure like that too, where once things like the cloud storage became so cheap and it became fast enough, 
we started building a lot of things on top of it that we wouldn't have really wanted otherwise. Yes. Or once Fivetran, the stitches and blenders of the world became a thing, it was like, oh, actually, yeah, I'd like to get data out of my like applicant tracking system. I don't think I need to do analysis on that, but if it's straightforward, yeah, I'll do that. We're yep. like, we sort of catalyzed a bunch of demand because we've made stuff that was so much harder, easier in a way that, that the ecosystem really kind of ballooned from. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Eric, my turn to say that I monopolized the conversation, so it's yours. No, it's great. Ben, okay, so I've read a lot of your writing over the years and really appreciate it, so thank you for the time and thought. And by the way, if our list, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners read your stuff, but if they don't, where can they find your, your musings online? So most of them are on a Substack. It's ben.substack.com. Need to work on the branding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, you know, it doesn't have a punchy name or whatever. <laughs> Never got past that point. Yeah, that's like, I, I, if you want to follow me on Twitter, great. That's much less interesting and infrequent. I don't know. I'm, you know, <laughs> keep myself sane by not saying too much on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. The, the longer form thing. If you have trouble sleeping or looking something to you know, knock you out at night, you can, you can check it out at Ben. That's no, it is really good stuff that, you know, right. Sort of writing like is a form of, in some ways, at least in my opinion, like sort of really testing your thinking, you know, because you're actually putting something down into words. And one thing I'm interested to know, like you think a lot about the data space in general trends like you've seen it over a decade like you know i'm tempted to ask you the standard question of like what's interesting or whatever but what i what i really want to know is what is a trend that you've seen that you that you look at and you're like this is happening but it's probably not a good thing you know sort um, of in the long term I, yeah, probably a couple of things. So, so first of all, also I'll say that, that yes, people say that writing is meant to help clarify your thoughts and test things out. I, I do most of my testing and production on that. So <laughs> you read the blog. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, apologies in advance. Force push to master. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hope for the best. See what people say. <laughs> and sometimes it works on it doesn't. So, okay. So I think, I think there's a couple things. These aren't really trends like, in terms of like big trends, I think there's like an oversaturation in the marketplace. There's yep. a lot of small problems that we're trying to turn into big problems that just don't need to be solved in that way. Yeah. Uh, or they need to be solved. But like they are better office features and not products. That doesn't seem super interesting. I think most people kind of agree with that. There is usefulness in having companies trying to solve those things that eventually like, we'll figure out good ways to solve them and incorporate that solution into something bigger, yep. which is like as an economic reality, I think it's hard for that stuff to yep. become viable. One of the things though, that I think is, is interesting about that. There's another trend in the data world that I think is, is kind of a bad dynamic that mode is like everybody's guilty. Every data company is guilty of this. And I, and I think it makes for ultimately worse products, which is everybody tries to be Switzerland. There is this like general sense, and I think DBT did this really well. And I think a lot of people basically are trying to do the thing that they did where you are competitive with nobody and you're like, oh yes, we work, we are agnostic to every other part of the stack. We work great with every database. We work great with every ETL tool. We work great with everything else. There is this kind of like reluctance to compete 
unless you are so squarely in someone's space that you can't let do it. Like Stensis and High Touch fight each other. It's kind of fun. I like it. I like that they like yell at each other about performance nonsense. I'm here for it. As a, as an aside, I'm also a small personal investor in Census, but like, don't care. I'm just here to watch these people fight it out. I think that's good. I think it's actually good that Snowflake and, and Databricks yell at each other about performance and stuff like that and are not shy about the fact that they're trying to do the exact Buy expensive billboards, right? Like, yeah, which Snowflake's billboards are terrible, but, you know, <laughs> clearly some 60-year-old dad wrote all their billboards and it's just terrible. <laughs> I love it. That's uh, one of the best spicy takes I've had on the, on the uh, show. Which I guess, you know, here we are talking about them, so job well done. Yeah. But I think there is this general thing of like, we all have to play super nice with each other. And I don't know that that actually leads to the best experience for customers where you sacrifice a lot of, well, if we just worked really well with these other people, if we focused on making really great experience with these two or three other folks, we could actually solve really good like, problems in really, really robust ways. Cause like there is this kind of fragmentation problem where the experience is kind of all disjointed. I think that's a problem. And I think the way you get around it is not by trying to make everything work with everything. And I do think there will be some, that is maybe a positive change around what is happening in the market now is there will be winners that start to emerge. There will be clearer, like, all right, I'm going to align myself with the winners and say, actually, I don't want to work with the people who are struggling. Again, that's, that's in some ways, like it's a, it's a cutthroat dynamic. It's a dynamic that will lead to some people losing. Yeah. Maybe mode. I don't know. But the point is, I think like in terms of as the customer of those things, I would rather that dynamic and, and think we end up with long-term, just a better product than if we end up with something where everybody's kind of like trying to play a little bit nice. And it's not, the thing is, it's not even nice. It's like trying to play like passive aggressively nice where yeah. the positioning is like, oh yes, we're all friends. Like, I, I think there's some just like, nah, let's actually just fight it out. So you can make the best products actually is kind of a useful thing. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. It's interesting because that's like a very like strange flavor of hypocrisy in some ways, because, you know, your go-to-market is like, we're all friends and your investors are like, we're not all friends. <laughs> yeah. Like if you get the outcome that I want, like we're not all friends. Uh, ben, this has been such a fun conversation. It felt like we were talking for like five minutes, but it was an hour. So thank you so much for your time. And we'd love to have you back sometime to come back and give us some spicy takes. Yeah. Thanks for, for having me. This has been fun. And I think my biggest takeaway from from that conversation, Costas, was just how transparent and I think real Ben is. I mean, you kind of get this from reading his blog, but like, it's just so refreshing to hear someone say like, man, VCs are pouring a bunch of money into companies that, you know, are basically should be features of other products, right? <laughs> and just to hear him talk about that and even sort of be dispassionate about mode, right? Like he was very clear, like maybe mode gets it wrong, you know, and sort of like goes to the grinder. You know, they've survived 10 years, so I don't think that's likely, but like, I, I don't know. I just appreciated that. Like he was just, he was probably one of the most transparent guests who like, will just say, say it how it is. And like, is okay with that also incriminating like himself and his company. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that Ben is like probably one of the most, uh, let's say, clear and consistent voices out there in the industry.
And that's something that like, I think everyone appreciates, it's not just me and you. And so that's one of the reasons that I, 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 I'm so happy that we had him today, like uh, on, on the show. What I keep from our conversation, to be honest, was like the last part of it about competition and how competition mm. uh, is important to build at the end, like a better product for the customers out there and how this particular industry right now, as it is like, it's at least at the surface level, like tries to avoid competing. But I have a feeling that like reality is going to accelerate things. So yeah. we'll see more competition happening out there and I'm looking forward to it. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Tell a friend about the show if you haven't, and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.